Well, good morning, everyone. If you could make your way back to your seats, please. It is a pleasure to be here with all of you this morning and as we gather to just really worship God and hear and apply his word in our lives. And uh, if you happen to be visiting or new, whether you're here in person or online, I just want to extend a special welcome to you. Thank you for being with us this morning. And if you are new, my name's Don. I'm one of the pastors on the team here at Grace. And we are really coming to the end of a series we've been in, in for several months uh, as we've been teaching through the book of First Peter. And um, I think we'll finish this up next week. We'll come to the end of that letter. And so today we're in the final chapter in chapter five. And our text for today is verses five through 11. And the title of the message today is called Persevering in Trials and Suffering. Well, most of you are probably familiar with the concept of a paradox. Uh, a paradox is a statement or proposition or concept that seems to contradict itself but is in reality true. In other words, we might think of something like the little phrase, less is more. You've probably heard that. Sounds contradictory, doesn't it? But yet, in reality, in the context that it's usually used in, there's a truth to that that is significant. Or we might take something like the statement, the more you learn in life, the more you realize how little you know. Again, sounds contradictory, but there's truth there. And, you know, when it comes to the Christian faith, paradoxes seem to be everywhere. And one that would certainly qualify is being a believer and the certainty of trials and suffering. I mean, these are just two realities that don't seem like they should fit together. I mean, think about it. When you become a believer, you know, you come into this incredible place of blessing from God. Your sins are forgiven. You're given the very righteousness of Jesus. You, you know, you're joined with Jesus and part of his resurrection life. You're adopted into God's family and really become a, a member of what is the highest privilege and honor that it, there could ever be in this universe. And yet, for the believer, the pathway to all the glory that is ours is a road that travels through trials and suffering. You know, Peter uses his own paradox statement to describe the Christian life in the very beginning of this letter, in the first chapter, in verse 1, as he addresses the, he, these believers. He calls them elect exiles. That's what we are as believers, elect exiles. Well, that's a paradox. Because to be elect means you've been chosen, you belong, you're accepted, you're part of the group. But to be an exile means you're an outcast. You don't fit in. You don't belong. And this paradox of the reality of suffering as a part of the Christian life, it can be a hard reality for us as believers to come to grips with. 
And it was hard for these believers Peter is writing to to come to grips with as well. And really, through these first four chapters, Peter has been helping them to come to grips with this reality and how they should respond to it. And in the very end of chapter 4, he closes that chapter with these words in 1 Peter 4.19. He says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You know, Peter could have stopped there. I mean, he could have just given his final greetings there, signed his name, and sent this letter out. But he doesn't. See, Peter understands that seeking to live out a faithful, holy life in the midst of trials and suffering, it's, it's hard. Faithfully persevering in trials and suffering over time is challenging. Particularly when that suffering comes as you're seeking to do good to others and live a life that honors God. And you know, suffering isn't a constant in our life, but you know, one of the best times to prepare for suffering is really before you're in it. I mean, it's like a heart attack. You know, you don't want to prepare for a heart attack when the, you're in the middle of having one. And so it's wise to prepare for what would you do ahead of time. And so it is with suffering in the Christian life. And so in his care for these believers in God's care for us wherever we may be as he speaks through these words in scripture Peter goes on to write one more section in this letter that speaks to the challenge of trials and suffering in the Christian life and in this final section in chapter 5 he gives really four final exhortations Four things aimed at helping them and us faithfully persevere when trials and suffering come our way. And really, the first one we touched on last week, one of the things that helps us persevere through times of trial and suffering is faithful, godly, pastoral care. See, pastors are really a means of God's grace to care for his people, and that can be particularly important if you're going through a time of suffering because pastors, you know, pastors who are faithful to shepherd God's people, they're there to pray for you. They're there to encourage you. They're there to give you godly counsel to help you understand and apply biblical principles in your situation. And so pastoral care is one of the means by which God cares for his people to help them persevere in times of trial and suffering. But there are three more things in this final chapter we want to look at today. And three additional things, if you will, that we need to lay hold of if we're to faithfully persevere in trials and suffering when those times come. And they surely will at some point in our lives. And so the big idea kind of for the message today is really pretty simple. It's just three keys to persevering in trials and suffering. So before we dig into what Peter has to say to us, let's take a moment and pray. 
Well, Lord, we do invite and ask your spirit to come and fill this room and this place with your presence, Lord. We, we need your grace, Lord. I need your grace to be able to communicate, Lord, your word faithfully and accurately and understandably. And so I pray that your spirit would fill me to do that. I pray your spirit would come and rest on each one here today. Lord, that you would accomplish the good work that you have for your people in this time. So, Lord, bless this time. Bless your church. Bless your people that you might be glorified in it and that your people might be served through your word. So we ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first key to persevere in trials and suffering is we need to actively pursue humility with God and others. <clears throat> Let's begin by looking at verses 5 through 7 of chapter 5. Peter says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You know, the trials and challenges we encounter in life, they're often things we have little or no control over. I mean, that's why faithfully persevering in those times is really necessary. And humility in how we respond to circumstances and people is extremely important when we face times of difficulty like that. See, humility positions us to receive grace from God now and rescue in God's timing. Humility is an expression of our need for God, our dependence on God in the day-to-day -day moments of life. And it is also an expression of our need for one another. See, God provides people. That was the whole point about pastors and pastoral care, that God's grace works through other people to help us persevere. And humility recognizes that God's grace often comes to us in various ways, one of which is through people. And humility is a lowliness of mind and spirit. Humility doesn't seek to take things into our hands. It doesn't seek to exalt ourselves or what we want or what we think we deserve. But humility sets aside our agenda to follow God's agenda and what's good and best for others. And there is no better example of a life of faithful humility than Jesus himself. And Peter regularly throughout this letter calls us to look to and follow Jesus' example. You know, because Jesus' life was characterized by a life of rejection and suffering and uh, grief and sorrow, and that's not even considering all that he went through at the end in his crucifixion and torture. And yet everything that Jesus did in his human life here on earth was done in humble submission to God and for our good. 
Everything he did was really done for our good. The reason he came into this world at all was he came in submission to the Father's plan to rescue us from the consequences of the sin and shame that have caused us to one day have to stand before God and be condemned for all the ways that we violated his holiness. And so Jesus comes into this world and he comes and he lives a perfect life of obedience. And he does that for us, for our good, so that he can give that righteousness that he earned in that perfect life of obedience to us. And then he comes and he, he dies, he gives his life to die on a cross for us, for our good, so that he can take all of the sin and the shame that we should be paying for, and he can pay for that on our behalf so that God might be able to forgive us for all the wrongs we've done. And then he rose from the dead, but he rose from the dead for us as well so that he could be the firstborn of a new, eternal, immortal life that we get to share in as a part of that eternity with him. And all of that comes to us just through believing what God says about who Jesus was and what he did and putting our genuine hope and trust in our hearts and turning our life over to him in faith and trusting him to be a, a savior for us. And so Jesus walked through all the rejection and the hostility and the suffering that he experienced in this world for one reason and one reason only, so that he could do good to us in submission to God's plan. And so all these blessings become ours by faith because Jesus walked through this life in humble obedience, seeking our good. He walked through this life trusting in God's grace to sustain him as he suffered seeking the good of other people. And we're called to follow this example. See, humility positions us to receive grace from God in times of suffering and trial so that we can be strengthened and sustained by his grace to persevere just as Jesus himself did. Humility places our lives under God's sovereign power and trusts Him to rescue or deliver us according to His plan. So Peter wants to exhort us to actively pursue humility in how we relate to God and other people. And so he really begins in verse 5 with exhorting the younger people to exhibit humility in being subject to the elders. And why does he single out the younger people in this context? Well, we don't really know for sure. I mean, maybe it's because the younger believers can lack the maturity of those who are older. Perhaps they'll be the ones most tempted to respond to suffering and trials in an unwise way. Maybe they're the ones who are most easily tempted to forsake the pathway of holiness and go back to participating with the world and the passions of the flesh. I mean, perhaps they particularly need to be exhorted to listen to the counsel and wisdom of the elders and how they walk through times of trial and suffering. But Peter goes on to say that everyone 
is to clothe themselves with humility toward one another. From the elders to the younger, humility is to characterize how we respond to other people. And humility is critical when we find ourselves in difficult times. Because Peter tells us here in these verses that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And the picture that that phrase communicates, it's really a picture of like two armies lined up across the the battlefield, if you will, about to go into battle against each other. And on one side is you and all your forces, and on the other side is God and all his forces. And so it probably doesn't take a lot of thinking through to figure out who's going to win that battle. And so that's the picture that when we respond in pride and taking things into our own hands and wanting to give people back what we feel they deserve when we're going through a difficult time, it's like we're aligning ourselves up against God in battle array. And God is opposing us in that. And those verbs, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, they're they're present tense verbs. The idea is that God is continually opposing the proud, continually giving grace to the humble. James, in James chapter 4, 6 through 7, says a very similar thing in a passage that's very parallel to what Peter shares in our text for today. James says this, he says, But he, talking about God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And I don't know about you, but but I don't need God opposed to me in a difficult time on top of everything else that may be going on. And you know, Peter, as he writes this, he understands all too well where pride will take you. Because I have no doubt that burned into his memory is the recollection of that night when Jesus gathered the disciples together and He's telling them what's going to happen to him, that he's going to be arrested and crucified. And he says, and you will all fall away and you'll be scattered. And Peter, in his self-confidence and pride, as was typical of Peter, stands up and says, oh no, Lord, not me. I will never fall away. And Jesus just looks at him and says, Peter, tonight, Before this night is over, you will deny that you even know me three times. Now, what humility might have looked like in that moment for Peter? Is it might have looked like this. Maybe Peter would have said, oh, Lord, Lord, please, no. Lord, I don't want to do that. Please, Lord, pray for me. Help me, Lord. Give me the grace to to not deny you. I don't want to do that, Lord. I need your strength to not do that. That would have been humility. But that wasn't Peter. Instead, Peter says, No way, Lord. I will die before I ever fall away from you. And we know how the story works out. 
A few hours later, he is weeping bitterly after denying that he even knew Jesus three separate times. Peter understood where pride would take you. And really, responding in pride often brings more trials and suffering into our life, while humility brings God's grace to sustain and help us in our difficulty. So we are to respond with grace and humility toward others when we're going through a difficult time, even when they may not treat us well. But when we find ourselves in the midst of some difficulty or trial, perhaps the most important thing we need to do is to humble ourselves before God. Let's look at verses 6 and 7 one more time. Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. See, when we face trials of various kinds, we need to willfully choose to humbly entrust ourselves and our situation to God's power and care. We lay aside our agenda to submit ourselves to God and his agenda. We entrust ourselves completely to him and place ourselves under his mighty hand. And when Peter uses this phrase, God's mighty hand, he's really drawing on the imagery from the Old Testament and the power and the might that God used in rescuing Israel from Egypt in the Exodus and and how God brought the plagues on Egypt and destroyed Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea and the power of God, God's mighty hand, literally humbled the greatest nation on the earth at that time. And Peter says, well, the the passage that Peter is probably drawing from is Deuteronomy 26.8, where it says, And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonder. That's the power that rescued Israel from Egypt. And Peter's saying, that's the same power that is at work on your behalf in your life. God is not unable to rescue and keep you and sustain you in times of difficulty. Because God is the sovereign Lord who is in perfect control of all our circumstances. And he has all power to do whatever he pleases. And he's not just all powerful, but he is perfectly good. And he cares for you more than you can ever imagine. And you are his treasured possession as Peter told us earlier in this letter and he has proven his love for you by sending his son to save you when you were a sinner deserving his judgment and rejection and if God loved you like that when you were his enemy you can trust him to keep you and care for you in whatever trial you may be facing now that you are his chosen, treasured child. And whatever your concerns and anxieties may be, Peter says you can can give them to him. 
And he is not only able to watch over you, but he cares deeply for you. He cares about what you're going through. And in his time, he will lift you up out of that difficulty. And he promises to be there with you to help you as you go through your difficult season. The psalmist says it this way in Psalm 55, 22. It says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. God will never let your trials and difficulties win out in your life. But you know, if we're honest, when we go through a difficult time, when we're experiencing some trial or suffering in our life, you know, normally we have one prayer. Lord, please get me out of this. Lord, please take this away. Lord, please remove this from my life. I don't know about you, but that's, that's kind of where I go when I'm in a difficult time. And so what we want when we're in our trials, we just want it to end. We just want it to be over. We just want God to take it away. But God doesn't always prevent trials or remove the difficulty, particularly as quickly as we might like. See, he doesn't promise to keep us from trials and suffering because he uses those difficult times to shape and refine us. But he does promise to be with us and to help us as we walk through it. Psalm 23.4, in those well-known words that David speaks in that psalm, he says this, he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You know, when I read those verses, I don't know if you're like me, but I'd rather it say, you know, I'd like to go around the valley of the shadow of death. I'd rather not have to go through it, if you don't mind. I'd prefer to kind of avoid that valley if possible. But David doesn't say that you will go around the valley of the shadow of death. There are times when God's going to take you through it. And his promise not, isn't to keep you from it, but his promise is to be with you when you go through it. He's there. He's, he's there to protect you. His rod, that's how shepherds protected the sheep. And his staff guided them and herded them in the direction. And so God's there to guide you, protect you, sustain you, keep you. He will be with you as you walk through those valleys. And verse 7 in our text says, you're, you're to cast all your anxieties on him. Because he cares for you. You know, anxiety can be a complex thing, but anxiety often comes out of a belief that we must take care of ourselves and those we love. That we must somehow secure the future in our own power. And anxiety fears and projects a negative future. We, we think about this negative future and we fear that it's going to happen. And so we worry and struggle to control things in life to prevent that negative future from taking place. 
And so we find ourselves experiencing anxiety because we're trying to control things we were never designed to control. Things that only God can control. Maybe you can relate to the testimony of this lady who described her experience. She says this. She says, I wake up every morning with a feeling of dread and urgency. My mind quickly races through a list of people I love or care about or or maybe even just met or heard about, reviewing in my mind the pressing issues, needs, and problems of anyone or anything that may need my attention or my help that day. Next, my mind turns to the list of things that my husband or my two children need to do. I have to be sure that no one forgets anything that might cause problems later. If I don't come up with anything significant, I might search further into what might happen in the future that could be prevented if only I could think of it and take some action. I am exhausted before I start. Maybe you can relate somewhat to that testimony a little bit. But you see, we we have no power or ability to control the present or the future. That kind of response, it locks us into thinking that somehow we have the power to control things that we really don't, and so we take on anxiety that we don't need to carry. And Peter says, don't do that. He says, humble yourself under God's mighty hand. He's perfectly sovereign and perfectly good. And we can cast all of our anxieties and cares upon him because he is the sovereign Lord and he cares for you. So how do you respond when you find yourself in a trial or difficulty? Would people see humility in how you respond to other people? Do you submit yourself humbly under God's mighty hand? Or do you try to take control of things yourself? Do you find yourself projecting a negative future that you then do everything in your power to avoid? Do anxiety and worry characterize your life in times of difficulty or trial? Or do you entrust yourself to a faithful creator? If we are to faithfully persevere in trials and suffering, we need to actively pursue humility with God and other people. Second key to persevering in times of trial and suffering is we need to know who our real enemy is and resist him. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. Peter says, Be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You see, there is a real devil. The demonic is real. It's it's not a myth. And the devil is seeking opportunities to devour Christians. 
See, he's the one stirring up a lot of the trials and suffering we encounter in life. And when we find ourselves suffering unjustly because of the world's response to us as we seek to walk out lives that honor God and how we live, Peter wants us to know that it's, it's not people who are primarily our enemies. It's the devil and his forces operating behind the scenes that are the real adversaries. Paul tells us that in Ephesians 6.12. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, if we, if we understand this, that it's, it's not primarily people that are our adversaries, that it's the forces working behind the scenes, it can help us to respond with grace and humility to people, even when they don't treat us well. But Satan is looking for those he can swallow up or devour. And he often does that by stirring up trials and then attacking your faith in the midst of them. See, the word devil, it really means slanderer. And you know what a slanderer is. A slanderer is someone who misrepresents or speaks falsely about another person. And that's exactly what Satan does. He's main strategy against your life is to slander God to you and misrepresent him to try to devour your faith. And this, is, this has always been his game. I mean, we can go back to the very beginning in the garden and look at what happened there when the serpent comes to Eve and he says to her, has God really said that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Well, God hadn't said that, right? He said only one tree. You can eat from everything but one tree. And so when Eve corrects him, she says, no, God didn't say that. He said, we could eat from any tree except this one. And if we eat from this one, we would surely die. And Satan says, oh, oh no. You won't surely die. He says, God knows that if you eat from that tree, you'll be like him. You'll know good and evil. And so what's he doing? He's, he's trying to build doubt that God's really for you, that he's, he's withholding something from you. He doesn't have your best interests at heart. And that's what he does to us all the time. He's prowling around looking for those who are vulnerable. And the primary battleground for these attacks is your mind and your thought life. That's where most of this battle is fought. See, he lies to you about God and who God is to you. He just whispers in your mind, and oftentimes you don't even know that it's it's him. You just think it's your own thoughts. And he says things like, how can God truly love you? if he would let this happen to you. God can't be good if he would allow you to hurt like this. Surely there can't be any good purpose for this pain and how it's affecting your life. God obviously doesn't care that you're going through this 
hard place or he would stop it. You see, he wants to damage and destroy your faith by reinterpreting your circumstances and situation for you. He wants you to believe his explanation for why you're going through this difficult time. He wants to turn you away from trusting in God so that he can destroy your faith. He wants you to listen to his counsel and wisdom. And Peter says, don't be unaware of what he's about. Be sober-minded and alert. And whatever suffering or difficulty he may be able to bring into our lives, he can do nothing that God doesn't permit and use for his good purposes. He is a lion on a leash. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Paul says God sets the limits on how much he allows difficulty and temptation and suffering to come into your life. Satan doesn't make that determination. And so when trials and suffering come, we need to know who the real enemy is and resist him. So how do we do that? Well, we resist him primarily by staying firm in our faith, by believing God rather than Satan's lies, by trusting that God's word is true, by trusting that the rewards God promises us far outweigh any suffering and trials we may experience in this life, by trusting that God is completely sovereign and that he cares for us. And so we reject Satan's temptations to forsake the pathway of holiness and and suffering and to go back to the passions of the world and the flesh. We resist him by not responding to those who treat us badly in an inappropriate way. We resist him by not giving in to hopelessness and despair when times of trial come. By holding fast to our confidence in who God is and who we are as his beloved children. And by trusting that he loves and cares for us and that he is the sovereign Lord of all things and that we are his treasured possession. And so we resist him by walking one step at a time along the pathway of following God and faith, trusting God will meet us with the grace we need each day. Knowing the certainty of the final outcome, that when Christ returns, we will share in the blessings and joy of his glory. And this war you're in with the devil and his evil powers, it's not unique to you. Peter says these same struggles are being experienced by believers all over the world. See, this is part of the reality of the Christian life. And we are not alone in this battle. 
God is with you every step of the way. He cares for you. And we need spiritual eyes that see beyond the immediate circumstances so that we can see the real enemy and resist his attacks. So that we will be able to faithfully persevere when times of trial and suffering come, whether it's now or some later time in our lives. But there's one more thing we need that is critical if we're to persevere in times of trial and suffering. And the third key is we need to fix our eyes on the certain promise of future glory. Peter finishes this section with a rock-solid promise that we can stake our lives on with absolute certainty. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. He says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, that's God's promise to each one of us. After you have suffered a little while, and this phrase, a little while, it could mean a few hours, a few days, a few months, a few years. But really, from the perspective of the biblical writers, when they look at this life compared to eternity, they see this entire life as a little while. And so part of this is speaking to the reality, I think, that throughout our Christian lives, we're going to encounter the reality of trials and suffering. It's part of what it means to be a Christian in this fallen world. But whether it's a few hours, days, years, or even the rest of our earthly life, with respect to the eternity that's coming our way, Peter tells us it's just a little while. And whether in this life or when Christ returns, when God determines the trial is complete, when his good purposes in your life are accomplished, God has promised to rescue you and exalt you in his timing. And he has promised to one day give you an eternal glory that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And that glory that awaits you is far greater than any sufferings we experience in this life. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans 8, 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present life, this present time, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And really, the the truth is, Your suffering in this life as you seek to honor Jesus and how you live is actually increasing the weight and greatness of that glory you will one day inherit. Paul tells us that in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He says, For this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul says this suffering we're going through in this life, it's actually adding to the incredible glory we will one day inherit. 
And so matter, no matter what this life may bring our way, the glory those sufferings will one day produce is infinitely greater. And when that day comes and you look back on this life, there will be no sorrow or regret for the difficulties we experienced in this life. <clears throat> and as we wait for that glory to be revealed, we rest and rely on God's unchanging promise to us in verse 10. And whether it's in this life or when Jesus returns, God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He will restore all that you may have lost and infinitely more. He will confirm and vindicate you before all the universe, including anyone who was the cause of your suffering. And he will give you the strength you need each day to endure and persevere in your trials and suffering as you look to him and depend on him. And he will establish you as his precious child who will share in the infinite joy and delight of his love and goodness forever and ever and ever for all eternity. And then we'll know how much the trials and sufferings of this life are really only a little while. If I could have the worship team come and join me. And so how can you know this is true with absolute certainty? Well, I think verse 11 tells us how. Peter says, To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, oftentimes, in an expression like this, the writer, biblical writers will say, to him be the glory. But not here. Here, Peter says, to him be the dominion. He wants you to, he wants to remind them that this is the sovereign king who rules and controls everything in this universe. And we can know this is true. These promises are true with absolute certainty because he is that sovereign king who has all dominion and all power forever and ever. And so how do we faithfully persevere in the trials and difficulties of the Christian life? Well, we need to actively pursue humility with God and others. We need to know who our real enemy is and resist him. And we need to fix our eyes on the certain promise of a sovereign God who has called us to his eternal glory, who promises to be with us and give us the grace we need to face whatever may come our way each day, who calls us to cast all our cares and anxieties on him because he cares for us who will always be with us as we walk through whatever trials or difficulties we may encounter, who will never leave us or forsake us, who will hold us in his almighty sovereign hand, and who will never, ever let us go, and who will without question in his perfect timing restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you.
and whose sovereign grace and power will ensure that you one day make it to share in his glory for all eternity. So let's close by standing and singing and declaring the reality of this faithful God in our lives.